0: I've got an amazing couple of guests here <laughs> in the studio with me. Friends of the show, Steve <laughs> uh, Bullock from the University of Bristol. Hello. And Maddie Nichols from the University of Bristol. Hello. Uh, so, uh, hey, listen, how, how are you guys doing? I'm trying to do my best radio voice. How's it going? You're doing very well, Andy. Thanks very yeah, much.
1: Yeah, you're doing fantastic. Your face. <laughs> <laughs> face for radio. Anyway, brother. back to normal. How are you? I'm good.
2: Busy. How about you, Maddie?
1: Yeah, pretty good. Pretty busy. Scienceing and stuff.
0: Okay, cool. What what science are you doing, Maddie?
1: What science am I doing? So I'm a PhD student at the University of Bristol. Um, technically under the umbrella of nanoscience, which is science of the very very small things. Um, but I'm actually working between chemistry and physics and engineering because I just can't quite make my mind up which one I want to work in.
0: Oh, right. But so. that's going to be really useful today because we're talking about the moon, which is really, really small, Mars, which is really, really <laughs> small, and dinosaurs, which are really... Oh, no, hang on a second.
1: <laughs> what? What, what? It's because they're just really far
3: away. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and Steve, what have you been up to?
2: Suppose this Miss um, <laughs> takes up the wings from our... Uh, line of esteemed chancellors, Um, uh, his installation ceremony was on Wednesday. He commented something that I was thinking, which installation sounds a bit like what you do to a washing machine. It really does. I was just
1: going to say, is that the kind of standard word that is used
2: (laughs) for that Apparently, yeah. And there was all sorts of robes and keys. um, And uh, Paul Nass gave uh, a fantastic speech. I'm really excited Mm. to, to see how... Uh, he settles in as Chancellor, um, and that all took place under a gigantic
0: moon. Yeah, didn't it just? Yeah. So Luke Jerram's artwork, Museum of the Moon, was hanging in the... Is it called the H.H. H. H. Wills building, is that right? Oh, Wills Memorial
1: Wills Building. Wills Memorial
0: Building, uh, there at the university. Yeah, that was hanging there over the weekend. It's gone now, but what an amazing thing. Did you see it, Maddy?
1: I did, and I actually got an ex- exclusive preview. <laughs> we actually went on down at a really weird time of day and it meant that we kind of managed to sneak our way in, even though we weren't really (laughs) supposed to be there. Um, So I got to see the moon, but obviously I've just been reading about the tour that the moon is doing around the world, and um, unfortunately it means that we didn't get to experience the kind of um, music and stuff that they had alongside it did you guys get to see that
2: oh yeah they had that on oh, at the weekend it, for the public opening there was also some apollo audio what else was there
0: Yeah, as well obviously debussy claire delune was playing in there all <laughs> sorts of things do you know i managed to catch up with luke Jerome, who is the uh, artist behind it and we had a, a brief conversation and i started by asking him what it was that had inspired him to make this work
3: yeah, so the idea was pretty much inspired by living in Bristol and cycling over the Avon Cut every day and um, noticing this huge tidal range difference. And there's a 13-metre tidal gap between high tide and low tide. And it's the moon that's making that happen. So I had an idea to sort of, yeah, create this moon and bring it to the city. Amazing. Did you uh, find that people have different reactions to it wherever you take? Yeah, some people have got quite emotional. But, um, yeah, every culture, is, they've got their own different mythologies beliefs and stories to tell about the moon so you know over in germany the moon is very much a male thing and then you know over in china people think about the the autumn festival um we over here we think we see a, a man in the moon whereas over in china the moon's like orientated slightly differently anyway and there you can see a hair so um every culture sort of interacts with the moon in a slightly different way and acts as a cultural mirror to the moon So I'm touring the moon around and comparing one culture with the other.
0: I mean, I'm an amateur astronomer. I spend a lot of time gazing at the moon, quite apart from being able to see it in this kind of detail, being able to go around the the far side of it and see that detail. Can you just tell us where's the imagery from?
3: Yeah, uh, I think it's the lunar reconnaissance orbiter mission and it's a nasa satellite that went around and around the moon taking thousands and thousands of photographs and all that has been sort of uh, made publicly available online so we, we found it and used that has your relationship with the moon changed while you've been making this work? i i think i've realized like any science that there's a sort of infinite amount of information that you can find out about anything so i'm still exploring the edges of of sort of lunar science. We're standing right at the moment underneath the South Pole and it's incredibly dark down there and that's because, you know, on the South Pole there are craters that just don't get any sunlight at all so they're never illuminated by the sun. And scientists are very interested in that because they know that there's ice down there and it's the ice that's very fascinating for them because... That's water and they can they're talking about using the South Pole as a a staging post for a mission to Mars. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me and thank you for making the piece. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for coming.
0: That's uh, Luke Jerram talking about the Museum of the Moon, and he'd mentioned there about uh, using the waters, potential waters on Mars, for going on... Sorry, the waters on the Moon to uh, for a mission to Mars, and we'll be coming to that as we talk about the possible possibility of water on Mars. Coming up after this, I was very fortunate this week to speak to Emmeline Bonmont, who is the person who actually calculated, you've probably heard about the Trappist-1 star with the seven at least seven planets uh, orbiting it in the news recently. Probably heard about it on this show. Uh, but Emmeline Bo- Beaumont is the person who calculated everything to do with the tides of those planets. There's a lot of tidal influence on those planets, and I thought, since we've just been talking about the moon, why don't we hear from Emmeline? And I began by asking her uh, how... Do those tides change the way that the worlds work up there?
4: Well, the the planets are very close in. Uh, If I remember well, it's like uh, almost everything is uh, below 0.01 AU. So like a uh, uh, hundredth of uh, the distance uh, between the Earth and the Sun. So it's very tightly packed. And within this distance, you have seven planets, which is a lot. So we expect all of them to be tidally evolving. So uh, to, uh, to deform the star uh, and uh, the planets also deformed. One expected output of that is that we expect the planets to be tidally locked. The age, uh, the estimation of the age of the system is very not well constrained, let's say. So we don't really know, but even if it's the lowest uh, limit of the age, it's still quite a long time, and it's plenty of time for the planets to get in this uh, tidally locked configuration. So it just means that they are going to show the same face to the, to the star, just like the Moon is showing always the same face to us.
0: So if I'm understanding you correctly, anything that's orbiting that closely to its star or to its planet will become tidally locked
4: Yes, exactly. Eventually, uh, everything uh, will become tidally locked.
0: And is that and, because uh, the gravity is pulling the, that side of the, the planet towards it? Or what, why, why does that happen?
4: Okay, so the, the, the thing is that the, the star is deforming the planet. It's uh, creating what we call a tidal bulge. And initially, this bulge is not aligned with the position of the star. And so you have a torque acting up on the planet to bring it back into alignment. So it's just that. And, and so uh, you, you need some time for this uh, configuration to be uh, reached. And, we, and for this system, for example, we know that by, by a few uh, hundred million years, uh, it should be okay. And uh, you, you might say that it's a long time, a few million years, but uh, the, the system is more likely to be gigayears years old. So it means that it really has a lot of time to reach this equilibrium. And uh, so th- so basically what happens in the a, in a Earth-Moon system is that uh, the Moon has reached uh, this uh, synchronization state, so it's tidally locked, but the Earth is not, obviously. So the, the Earth is rotating much faster uh then the moon is orbiting around it the earth is actually deformed uh by the moon and the the clear visible sign is the 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 phenomenon of tides that we see in the ocean and that's uh, actually uh th- these tides in the ocean are, are the most uh dissipative process that makes uh this um, uh earth moon system evolve so for example, uh, due to the tides in the oceans, uh, the moon is actually going away from us. It's like a few centimeters per year. And uh, the rotation of the Earth is slowing down. Okay. So for example, in the past, uh, the, the duration of the day was actually shorter and in the in future it's going to be longer and the moon is going away.
0: Back to the TRAPPIST-1 planets, does that Because they're tidally locked, does that mean if there are oceans on those planets that they wouldn't have tides in the same way that we do?
4: Exactly. It would be uh, like static always. uh, So you you wouldn't have low tide and high tide like we have. Uh, But the the thing is that uh, when we say that planets are synchronized and everything... um, it's, uh, it's only when you consider, li- like, the, the rocky parts of the, of the planets. But recent works uh, have shown that if you consider the atmosphere, you can have not exactly synchronization for uh, specific cases. So maybe they are not synchronized exactly. Uh, but we, we are going to be able to have an insight on that uh, when uh, these planets are going to be observed with the James Webb Space Telescope. Is going to give us uh, indications on uh, on the atmosphere, the stability of the atmosphere, and from that we will be able to infer if the atmosphere can delock <laughs> in a way the the rotation of the of the planet. If
0: you were going to stand on the surface of one of these planets, what do you think you would see? if you looked up at the night sky or the day sky? And...
4: Well, it's, uh, it's a very good question. Okay, so the first thing that would be super striking and really impressive is that when your planet passes by one of its neighboring planets, the, the, the size of the planet in the sky would be, would be uh, I think, bigger than the moon.
0: Amazing, yeah.
4: So from bo- both uh, your neighbors on both sides, uh, you, you could have really nice view. The central star, or so, of course, w- would be very different from uh, from what we see uh, with our sun. It would be like much redder. Probably the sky wouldn't be blue. Maybe like reddish, or so, or orange. Uh, so it would be it would be so completely different. And um, and it, it, let's say, let's be crazy for a moment and imagine that there could actually be life and maybe vegetation. It probably wouldn't be green as well, I guess. <laughs> so and I, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, then we it, it's more like science fiction. But things would be completely different than from Earth, uh, logically, because the star is so different. And especially if you have tidally locked planets, you have like a side that's only sees the 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 sun and the other side that's only sees the night so that would be uh, that would be really weird <laughs> Could go, yeah
0: so you'd be like I, just, I fancy doing a bit of astronomy i'm gonna go over that bit and now <laughs> oh, yeah now i want to get a tan so yeah. i'm gonna go that yeah. bit
4: exactly and if you stand on the terminator it's like a perpetual sunset which is also very nice
0: <laughs> imagine I'm how much nice. the houses cost there they must be
4: yeah <laughs> that must be the best spot <laughs>
0: that 's Emmeline Beaumont uh, from the Trappist One Discovery. I read a story recently about the an impact crater on Mars being a clue to tsunamis on mars now i 've heard that there 's hints of water on Mars, but tsunamis that 's amazing isn 't it
2: yeah, I think that 's crazy we'll, we'll um we, we we know that there there once was Likely liquid water on Mars. It's 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 whether there's currently water on Mars uh, in in liquid form that that we'll talk about later. Um, but this um, uh, article that I, we found on the BBC uh, about the impact crater linked to Martian tsunamis is absolutely fascinating. Um, so, the team of scientists that presented this at the forty eighth lunar and planetary science conference recently um, uh, hypothesized that there were possibly one hundred and fifty meter high waves traveling ninety five miles over uh, mars 's vast northern ocean now that 's a uh, um, uh, a theory that's been about from some, for some time, that the, the, the sort of lower uh, part of the northern half of Mars was, was a giant ocean. Um, and this evidence backs it up. Um, the, um, the planetary scientists found tsunami deposits, so distributions of, of sediment uh, on the now dry northern parts of Mars, uh, that indicate that there were these, these big waves, potentially a tsunami, caused by uh, a huge asteroid.
0: Wow. I mean, it's just crazy, isn't it? I mean, I know it's a long time in the past, but it still just it blows my mind just to think about another planet in our solar system. We've just been talking about Trappist, of course, mm. with the, the seven planets. And there's, it's possible that there's, as, as Elmin Balmond was saying, that there's water on those planets, which is... Um, yeah, and they would be able to see them in the night sky. It's bigger than the moon. Yes. If you were standing on one of those planets, that the, one of the other planets in Trappist, one passing by you mm. would be as, as bigger than the moon and if you just I, it just that combined with this story of mars in its past just makes me think about all the planets that are out there in the in the in the universe and how many with water sloshing around on them and therefore life there must be
1: yeah i just think it's incredible the sort of information we can get from the photos that we have just mm. from the telescopes that we've put out there and it's kind of like well what about all the stuff that's happened before we've managed to document <laughs> what's gone on on these planets? And obviously we've got no idea. But, I mean, these are ways for us to speculate what was going on before we were able to take a look.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it's more than speculation, isn't it? It's, it's based on things that we can observe. And when I say observe, I mean, with, with Mars, we've we've got uh, telescopes and we've got satellites around Mars and we've got rovers on it. Um, but from the data that we can see there we can go back in time through all the simulations that these guys have run and and visualizing mars with a giant ocean and and tsunamis and things is just crazy um with the trappist stuff um we're looking at, at light and, and other signals from very very distant planets and and um, the science has reached a point where we, we can sort of say well it's likely that they'll look like this and it's likely that they'll be tidally locked and um and yeah the simulations that they 've run of, of what the sky would look like are just absolutely brilliant i I, I love that we can make these. Predictions that are based on the evidence that we can see, and we're just getting better and better at that. So when the James Webb Space Telescope launches next year, hopefully, fingers crossed, <laughs> um, then uh, then we'll get even better data from Trappist and lots of other places. Yeah, amazing stuff.
0: Now there was this story about tsunamis of water sloshing around on. Was there any other kind of tsunamis? But tsunamis <laughs> sloshing around on, on the surface of Mars in the past. But there's been hints of, of water on Mars now. But one of the Might just have been taken away. Is that right, Steve?
2: Yes, um, might. Uh, Let's. This is a. It's described as an alternative hypothesis, but that's different from an alternative (laughs) fact. (laughs) This is this is one option. So, so the um, the the water on Mars was was a hypothesis based on some evidence that we've seen from uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and and other sources. Um, This team. Um, are saying well maybe it's not that and this is how science works you get um, alternative uh, competing theories and the more evidence you get the 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 more accurately you can decide which of your predictions is right if any um, so the um, University of Paris Sud um, led by Frederick Schmidt uh, are saying that uh, there is other evidence for, for well, basically, all it is is dark streaks that we've observed. Um, so uh, we spoke to uh, Dr. Elliot Nash a while back on the um, the Cosmic Shed, uh, talking about what these dark streaks could be, um, and um, the the prediction there was that water was freezing and thawing on these slopes. Now that was. Um, the, the slopes they're looking at are in a fairly equatorial area, which means that ice water just below the surface may or may not be likely. Um, uh, these guys are saying it's, it's not, um, and it's a, a different reason. <laughs> is, is it? I, I, I don't want to describe it too much because the science is uh, not, not in my area but, Yeah, uh, no, fair enough no, I, crazy, I should
0: probably that? just explain something Steve said there, so uh, Steve Maddy and I do a, a podcast called The Cosmic Shed uh, where we explore science through science fiction It's very good, you it, should listen it to it It is very good, we're yeah, okay up for an award, Bristol Life Awards we're, uh, we're up for that, so <laughs> you, you probably know that if you listen to this show shame, <laughs> shame, 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 shame. Yeah, I can't just let someone say The Cosmic Shed On the radio, and not just explain what it is. Um, Listen, Mars is amazing. Do you know what else is amazing? Dinosaurs. Maddie, I read that dinosaurs might have come from the UK.
1: Uh, It's shocking, right? That the UK could be known for something other than bad weather and (laughs) the royal family.
0: (laughs) Is that what we're known for?
1: Well, but those were the things that came to my head. Okay, <laughs> Very patriotic, right? Yeah. Um, bad weather, definitely throughout the world. Um, so yes, apparently, dinosaur have been found. Dinosaur fossils have been found in the UK, and uh, I'm sure quite a lot of you found out a little bit about dinosaurs while you were growing up. Um, I know a lot of kids that I know are pretty obsessed with dinosaurs. Um, so as we all kind of know, there was a um, big impact from a like. Asteroid which um, landed near the Gulf of Mexico and formed the crater that we now call today um, Chicxulub. Um, and this brought about the extinction of the dinosaurs. And we have since come to learn that the different variety of dinosaurs and types that were around um, from probing the fossil record. So it's archaeologists kind of digging around in the dirt and finding all these fossils and bones. And I'm sure lots of you have gone and seen them in museums, they're very impressive and huge. Um, It's also told us a lot about how the um, land masses, so the countries that we have today, have sort of moved around because the presence of some bones or fossils, not necessarily, strictly speaking, dinosaurs, um, where they're located in different parts of the world tells us which different edges of different countries and continents were once in contact, because that's how the dinosaurs would have been able to move between these places and leave their fossils behind. Um so it's kind of like a symbiotic relationship where we get like so one kind of helps the other where we sort of worked out how the earth has changed um through movement of the different plates and what dinosaurs were around. So quite recently um some evidence has surfaced that the Chicxulub crater um the story that we know is a little bit different to what we've been told. So um, Upon impact, there was a really wide hole, and part of it then collapsed in, it sort of rebounded in, um, producing a sort of inner peak. Um, And that means that today most of the crater is um, buried, um, but we can still see bits of it. In fact, in parts of Mexico, there are famous sinkholes around, which is where the um, different um, deposits in the rock are a bit more permeable to water, so it gives you these kind of beautiful sinkholes that you can go take a swim in. (laughs) Oh, wow. Very exciting. Um, So we've got this. And quite recently they've been looking, um, taking cores from here, which is where they kind of drill down into the rock and remove some of it. And then through studying the rocks, they can tell about the past of the earth because the behavior of the rocks kind of, well, behavior of the rocks. (laughs) (laughs) That's Terrible, terrible phrase to use there. But um, different... Um, properties of the rocks tell us different things about the earth, um, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's what we found out in Chick's So they've also found these fossils um, in the UK, yeah. which have led us to believe that dinosaurs actually came into being quite a bit earlier than we've been told, by yeah. about, was it 15 million years? So? Yeah. Which is quite a
0: lot. It's quite a lot, quite isn't it? a lot. It? Yeah. So
1: they found these fossils, um, and... this basically leads us to think that the classification system that we've used so far is now wrong which i think is a little bit unfair i don't think we should really be casting these this blame be like oh you're wrong yeah yeah like yeah, we're going to change it. Obviously, we should change it. But, you know, a lot of science is based on the evidence we have at the time. Yeah. And obviously, we can go back and revise it as new evidence comes to light, mm. such as in this case. Mm. Um, so so this
0: new, the new evidence that's available is, is, is essentially, as I understand it, we've classified dinosaurs really by their hip bones, because mm-hmm. the hips don't lie. I'm not going to play that. And <laughs> they have, there's, there's two types, essentially, or that's what we thought. There were the, the dinosaurs that have bird-like hip hips which is um things like triceratops <laughs> and stegosaurus yeah and then there's things that have reptile type hips which are things like um diplodocus brontosaurus um Brontosaurus. Well, that's what I said, <laughs> and um, and, uh, and T Rex and all those meat eaters. But this reclassification, when we look at the bones and more of the bones, we look at more of the evidence. We see that actually those meat eaters, the T Rexes, the, the all of those Allosauruses, all of those guys, actually belong with the um, with, with the with the hip. Uh, sorry, with the hip joint. In um, the hip bone dinosaurs but not because of the hips but because of other aspects of their di- skeletons
1: yeah so yeah that's what, that's yeah. what I've concluded as well okay, um, cool. yeah so I'm not quite sure exactly what the new classification is or what it's based on but yeah we're kind of moving from this whole oh they're either bird hipped or lizard hipped to something a bit different that kind of encompasses more of the features and it apparently works into the model quite nicely or classification scheme works very nicely with the evidence from a couple of years ago that some uh, dinosaurs had feathers Mm. so it kind of ties that all in a bit more nicely than it presently does with the current classification system
0: absolutely so there's there's those other dinosaurs that aren't these dinosaurs they didn't have feathers so things like the diplodocus didn't have feathers whereas things like the t-rex and the Triceratops had feathers, and that's the new classification, in a sense, not necessarily just the feathers, but lots of different aspects, and that makes more sense. I think it makes more sense. Hopefully, um, when
1: it's revealed, it will make more sense.
0: Now, it's Love and Science, but coming up after us is John Ford with Getting Bristol Home. And I've been, every time I finish this show, I get in my car and I drive home. And John does this wonderful show afterwards, and he's been begging, he's been literally begging to join us as part of the show. So here he is.
5: Hello, how are you?
0: I'm alright, how are you? Thanks for joining us.
5: Are you? No, I sound like I'm in the toilet. It- there That's you better. are. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, yeah. I thought you could... If Story you could of my you. life, you haven't turned me on. <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah, he's actually
1: been here all <laughs> in every love and science, agency, yeah, yeah, but yeah. they've never turned his mic up. No. But today, <laughs>
5: today... <laughs> and you call yourself scientist. And you <laughs> found the button.
0: Scientists, not engineers.
5: That's, That's why
1: first. we're here, actually, to help Andrew with the sound.
5: Yeah. <laughs> but You know, by qualification, I'm an engineer, a mechanical engineer, though. Yeah, no, really? electronics, yeah. I studied mechanical engineering. That's what I. It was myology. That's what I did. Oh, Okay. You see, we
0: well, the reason, real reason we've got John in is because um, every time we we do this show, John and and, I, and Ma- Malcolm and I pass like ships in the night. We never get to have a conversation. So I thought it'd
5: be nice to have a chat with him. You, you, the real reason is after the show, I always say nice things about their show. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get you anywhere. And, and they're stunned because now they have to listen on the way home just. To <laughs> So I, I do it later and later and later. <laughs> <too>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always like to try and find a few uh, little scientific facts. Did you know today, for example, you'll love this as a scientist, in 1933, uh, polythene was discovered? Was it? Yes, it was. How was it discovered, do you know? I don't know how it was discovered, but it was discovered by a fellow called Reginald Gibson and his mate called Eric William Fawcett. Now, you think if they were American and his name was Fawcett, he would have discovered the tap yeah. or something. Mm. Fawcett, yeah. but no. They discovered polythene, yeah, 1933. All right, okay. Well, there you go. So, where would he be without them? Um, slightly less
0: climate change, I think, probably. Yeah.
5: <laughs> We'd probably have more oil, though. It'd be cheaper, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And this day, in 1914, the first successful blood transfusion took place in Brussels. Ooh. It's very sciencey, isn't it? That's good. Mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah? Uh, we're getting less but the, we but none of us would be anywhere without this fella. M. L. Byrne in 1860, he patented something. Do you know what it was? Uh, it's becoming less what, relevant these days. What, you, to be 1860? Old. 1860. It's becoming less relevant these days. Is it the truth? Because there's... <laughs> so- <laughs> No, that was less relevant a long time ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, because we have screw caps these days, but this fella it, uh, patented the corkscrew. Oh, okay. Ah, yeah. that's quite scientific, yeah, though, isn't it? it the corkscrew, It was a good invention back in its day. Yeah, it was patented. Yeah, this day in 1860, the corkscrew. There you go. Um, I still have uh, screw top wine tonight. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, get mine in a box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can do okay. this. Oh, to, you can do this to celebrate as well. Um, 1866 uh, Andrew Rankin What do you reckon he uh, first created? Oh, he I know was It's patented. a kind
1: of scale, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Scale?
5: Well, you, if you weighed it, you'd be pretty scale. upset I would have thought <laughs> Oh, you, you know what it is? What is it? <laughs> of <Go> course <on>, Steve <laughs> you know, He's having a oh, it's, it's it's temperature temperature Look at this you cheating? No, Google. no, no It's something to do with temperature, isn't it? Um, it's quite warm if you touch it oh. oh What did he do then? Was it the sun? No, he painted the urinal Oh, <laughs> oh Really? <laughs> Different ranking. <laughs> Why is it warm? Uh, Why is it warm? Well, not the Uranus warm, but... You
2: know,
1: right, OK, so, yeah, I'm sorry. OK. <laughs> that was a clue. That was was it again. the same one? He
2: was a, he was a, a, a Scottish physicist or engineer. The Andrew
5: ranking Rankin. scale is a temperature scale. Yeah, was that Andrew Rankin? Uh, According to my source... Uh, William. Happened. William ah, is oh. uh, They might have been... Um, in the same family, no I don't cousins. know. Cousins. <laughs> what do you think I they talked about over the dinner table? Yeah. Weighing, weighing the wee. I
0: yeah. don't know. But I can't <laughs> help feeling that the, the process in getting up to the point where you invent the original must have been a very messy one. Because you've got to keep trying things out. And you're going, Oh well, that didn't catch it. And that do, I mean, how do you invent a urinal? Oh, I think
1: question. the invention of the shiwi was probably more difficult.
5: Well, that took about another 200 <laughs> years, didn't it? <laughs> have you ever used one? She was I by have, jealousy. I
1: have, it's very strange.
5: I bought my wife one, she's never used it.
1: <laughs> like, as a female, it's very strange um, going to the toilet standing up.
5: Yeah, it, it must, be, <laughs> a, a very must be really convenient. Feeling. You know, if you're caught short somewhere, you need a tree. For those of you who have just... Che- <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: You're
5: listening to Love and Science on this so I think that's the weirdest
2: place we've ever gone.
5: Do you have any dinosaur facts? Uh, not really, no. No. Oh. Not really. All right, then. We'll just have to uh, stick with your eye Only they've found big footprints in Western Australia. Big footprints. Oh. Uh, which is where my in-laws mm. be, are oh, big
2: big footprints, not big
5: footprints. No, not big footprints. Alternative prints, foot, No, huge footprints in Western <laughs> Australia. Big dinosaur footprints. Oh, yeah, really? Fantastic. Yeah. Over 20 species. Wow. wow. Including my in-laws that live my mother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in- in-laws are, are dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, yeah, very much so. Fossilised, actually. Big head, well, little arms.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much indeed to uh, Steve and Maddy for joining me here in the studio. Thank you very much. And, Thanks, uh, John's coming up with uh, Getting Bristol home. Uh, much more of him, much less of us uh, after Excellent. good news.